This is a better product exclusive going behind the product of Etsy. I'm Christian. And I'm Megan. Nick Volpe, a product designer focused on the seller side at Etsy. And to clarify for everyone, Etsy is a two-sided marketplace. They have both buyers and sellers. Yeah, exactly. So it's important to know how Nick's role fits into that larger scheme. So we have definitely core areas of the product of being a two-sided marketplace. You could think about a, you know, a buyer area and a seller area. But the reality is, is that we believe, I think, that really doubling down and focusing on either of those two areas, it might cause us to miss the mark when it comes to our KPIs and trying to make sure that all those customers are successful. So I am on a team that skews a little more towards the seller side being, uh, it's called seller performance. We really focus on our seller tools and making sure those tools are efficient, making sure those tools are exactly what sellers expect and want, and it enables them to do their job well, uh, which is satisfy both of our customers, which is the buyer at the end of the day. Now, Megan wasn't part of the interview, so she'll be hearing Nick and I's discussion for the first time right alongside you. And as you'll soon hear, Nick shares how Etsy views the design function as a collective unit and part of their opportunities to think about, well, I'll just let him tell you. One of our major goals was thinking about the customer's customer. So not only do we interact, definitely interact with all sides of Etsy, we making sure that success is, is actually met on both sides. Success is met on both sides, sure, but nothing exists without sellers being able to sell products successfully. So how does Nick balance it all? Because depending on who you are in the system, an entirely different experience is needed, right? Yeah, and that's a challenge. One of the challenges with a marketplace is that you have a business that's trying to make money, but you have like basically two different sides that are contributing to that. So having to balance the two sides, especially in Etsy's case, you've got sellers, you need to support them to make it easier to sell, but you can't do it at the cost of making it easier to buy because you need buyers for sellers to sell to. So it's really hard to just maintain that, that balance. For me, it's almost like balancing a seesaw. But anyway, here's Nick and he'll do a better job explaining. Etsy has a precedent for the, a few precedents for this. One is being Etsy is a very, very big experiment culture, especially, uh, especially when we're thinking about when it comes to, you know, when it comes to servicing buyers, we really want to make sure that everything we put on the website is, you know, in service of making sure that they have a good experience and in turn come back and shop with Etsy. So thinking about how we prioritize is really thinking about breaking down our problems into smaller sort of iterative experiments and make sure that we're tracking uh, towards the right thing. And when it comes to both sides, we, we really do that. So we kind of break down these problems uh, into, into smaller chunks. So you've had... Uh... A lot of experimentation on on the buyer side, the you know, experimentation culture. You're mostly on the seller side. Experimentation culture over to the seller side. What we're trying to do on the seller side right now is really trying to understand it at a deeper level and a level when it comes to thinking about the customer journey and sort of their their goals and what they're trying to do. We have a lot of tools on the seller side. You know, we offer sellers a broad suite of tools from from marketing to ads to being able to post up their their listings uh, very quickly but really what what we're trying to do right now and what the opportunity for us is to figure out where those experiences sort of where the walls of those experiences are sort of broken down and where we can sort of replace those 
experiences with more of a sort of a goal-oriented mindset. As a seller, I want to provide great customer service. I don't only want to list an item, but over time, I want to optimize it. I want to make sure that it has the right search terms. I want to make sure that the content on there is fresh. I want to make sure that buyers are converting. I want to start an ads campaign, but I want to make sure that you know the budget that I'm putting into it is right. So again, instead of breaking those down into thinking about you know those individual features or feature sets, we're trying to break down those walls and try to con- turn those into workflows and goals and think about how we can optimize those. So instead of taking any one of those experiences and sort of just throwing it out and let's say rebuilding it, we're trying to figure out how to really optimize sort of the workflows in, that happen in between them. It's almost like there's the functional lens of what you have. Like you said, the feature-based lens is like, okay, can they run ads? Check. Do we allow them to do marketing? Check. We've done that. But it's like you're stepping back to think, okay, we've been doing this for a while now. We have enough data, different, you've mentioned there's a lot of different types of sellers. And, and I wonder if it's like, now that you've started to see there's differences, you can almost elevate and say, let's get back to the goals. Because like, I imagine no, no seller is just like, I want to do ads. They say that if they do say that, it's because they've read somewhere or somebody told them like, you should, you should have ads. But like nobody sets out to do ads. It's always in service of something grander. So it sounds like you're almost moving from that functional lens to like, what is ultimately your goal that you're trying to achieve there? It sounds like a more a richer experience you're trying to provide. Absolutely. One of the common things between all of our sellers is that they all want to sell their products. They all want to, they all want to make sure that their customers are happy. A lot of the research that I've conducted at Etsy, we ask sellers, you know, what's most important to you? And time and time again, um, they tell us that their customers are satisfied. And not only that, is that Etsy can't think about that one of the core tenets of Etsy is our sellers being able to sell their their unique items. Um, so they, you know, or their unique products. So they really care about their products. We really want to make sure that the time that they spend on Etsy is super valuable so that they can actually get back to their products and the things that they really care about. You know, when it comes to marketing and ads, those are only functions of trying to increase your buyers, increase sales, increase your reach. But at the end of the day, they really want to do is they really want to focus on their product. They want to get in, they want to get out, they want to make sure their customers are happy and that they can, you know, move on and make their products great. Is there anything, since you've worked in a B2B you know, SaaS, you know, type of product. Now you're in a marketplace dealing with selling. And what you just described, is there some, is there something fundamentally different in the way that you approach, I guess, success metrics there? So you, you want to get them back to, to their work. Is that any different than how you were with, with Buddy Media or, or Salesforce where you're trying to optimize the usage of the tool? Have you found yourself having to shift the way that you think about design or think about research with this, with this shift? Absolutely. The context between a, a SaaS tool versus a tool that has buyers and I mean, it, it can't be really more different. But in both scenarios, you know, we talk about customer success. We talk about frictionless experience. We talk about they can get to their goals as fast and as efficiently as they want, right? That is common throughout designing anything when it comes to user experience. But when it comes to a SaaS product in a work setting, we really want to make sure that we're providing them with always the features and functionality that they need in the moment. They come up with completely unique challenges all the time, especially in the space that I was working um, in the marketing space. And those challenges actually got 
even increasingly more complicated um, when we were in the customer data platform space. I worked with users before that a lot of them really didn't even want our UI. They really just wanted a way to upload the information or a way to download the information. Or So for, for them, that, that experience was really about, you know, just sort of like making sure that the goals that, and oftentimes they, all the time, they'd be working through an organization or company so that they could basically meet their company goals. At Etsy, it's really all about making sure that our sellers can get in, get out, and sort of get back to um, sort of get back to what they love. So it's really even that much more crucial that we provide time to value or ROI when it comes to Etsy sellers. The last thing I mentioned is the commonality between those two is that something we talked about at Salesforce a lot was that concept of the customer's customer. So we did really want to make sure that the outcome of both of those, you know, or we want to make sure that the outcome of those products um, is meeting the needs of the sort of the end user. And oftentimes the product that you're designing for is not the end user of the product that will be used. It's funny. Well, first off, I, I just have to say that I, you know, I, I started my career at Autodesk designing AutoCAD software and the software was basically how you got work done. Like if you were designing an electrical network, you did it in AutoCAD. So when I started my career, it was like, we're not trying to get you back to your job. This is your job. Like you use this to do your job. Then I worked at a large marketing automation software and it became clear to me that the goal of this software is to start to get them to be able to do other things. But it's inevitable with some where in Salesforce, like go on LinkedIn and there are people who specialize in Salesforce as a product. Like the product got so large, it got big enough that it became someone's job, right? Amazon, you see people that that specialize in setting up and optimizing Amazon. And I'm not saying this in a negative, but I have to think at some point, Etsy could go down. It's like, it's gotten so big. There are people that you pay to just optimize Etsy. Maybe those already exist. But as a designer, there's almost something disheartening to know that you're designing something that people like don't want to use. Or like as some products, you're like, Salesforce is great. Don't get me wrong. But like some people are like, God, I don't want to get back in there. And I feel like that attitude is usually because it's keeping them from doing something else. It's got to be tough. You've experienced that world where I'm imagining now you're working with sellers and you don't want to get so big that you become this like, oh, I've got to open up the Etsy seller tool again and, and do whatever they need to do. You want to be a breath of fresh air, like, don't worry, it's going to be super fast. You can get back to what you're doing. Something that I was focused on for a decent amount of time when I first started at Etsy was our sale on Etsy tool. So what we really wanted to do um, with that tool is do just that. You know, we wanted to make sure that sellers could, uh, we have a sale on Etsy tool today does almost everything that that the desktop can do but it could use it could use a refresh it's something that that was worked on and then you know it, it wasn't as much worked on recently we kind of uh, changed um, priorities but then it kind of cycled and you know we said we wanted to double down on working on that product and we saw that product as really 
just that. We saw that as a mobile tool that you could log in at anywhere, you know, and anywhere you are in the world, you can open up and understand how am I doing with Etsy? How many orders? Maybe I'm out during the day. And what happens, you know, a lot with sellers is that, you know, they're, they're out during the day. They're out a lot of times. This is not their, you know, not their primary job. You know, one of the things that they really love about the app and that we, you know, definitely brought into the new app um, is the concept of the cha-ching, which the cha-ching is a sound that happens whenever you get make a sale. And that is something that sellers absolutely, absolutely love because is that, you know, what, why are you selling your products on Etsy? Because you you want to sell your products. So whenever they make that sale, that is something that that they really love. So we wanted to bring that back into the mobile experience and also take that concept and sort of extrapolate it to the rest of the, the UI. So making sure that not only uh, is that UI efficient, but it's something that you know sellers really feel like they can just get in, sort of enjoy it. You know, it's something that feels really good something that, again, they, they can do really fast and kind of put down and, and get back to what they, they were doing. That's a really good you know, example. And it reminds me of the MailChimp when they had this uh, Freddy, the, the chimp, like this high five. I don't know if you're familiar, like after you do your first campaign and I saw one of their co-founders talking about the decision to do that because when you do your first email campaign, it's like really anxiety. And like once you like press send, it was like this, like you did it. it sounds very similar. But my question for you as a designer is how do you ensure that things like that get prioritized? Because we, where we started this conversation is there's a lot of functional things that it can do. And you can get stuck in the trap of development. Is this something we can build? It is this really a functional requirement. The cha-ching sound, even just saying it over, it was like, that's not like helpful. Like that doesn't help anybody get their job done. So if you got that successfully prioritized, I'd love to work backwards from and say, how do you even catch certain things that are almost more emotional that you can add value that's outside of a functional area? How does that happen in, in what you do? It just goes back to um, what I was talking about is the, the research track. I mean, we do a lot of talking and talking to and understanding, trying to understand our sellers and understand their motivations. How do you tell me? Tell me what that's like. Like, do you, do you talk to them on the phone? Or are you sending out forms? Yeah, one of the things that we did once a month, we either bring a set of buyers or a set of sellers into the office or virtually into the office. What we'll do is we'll we'll set this up on a rotating basis so that any product team can actually come and join that session and they have access to ask sellers pretty much anything. We also do this for buyers, but I'll talk about it, you know, sort of from the seller side because that's what I've been focused on. But we ask them pretty much anything. You know, we'll show them some latest, uh, some of the latest things we're working on. Um, maybe we'll do some more formative research about maybe the, what their motivations are and, and sort of try to understand them a little more deeply. And then all the way up to, you know, use research where we actually let them try out something or try out a prototype. And we just talk to them. We ask them questions. We ask them all the way from how they got started in Etsy and try to really understand, again, their motivations, all the way up to you know how they might feel about a particular feature or functionality that, that we're building. So not only do we have product teams, but we open it up to have people actually listen in, um, also recordings go out and make sure that everybody can hear the voices of our customers. And I think that that is something that was that's really helpful for us. When you say product teams, like what types of roles? Let's say product team is encompassed of like a, you know, kind of a product manager at the head alongside a designer, engineers, one or more designers sometimes, and then also some people around the periphery at Etsy. We, we usually think about it as those core product teams. Um, and then there are 
people that are around the periphery that are sort of shared resources across like marketing, product marketing, branding, and things like that. Usually it will start with the core product team that has like sort of a hypothesis or something that they want to ask, but usually we'll, you know, extend the invite to to multiple people that that can actually listen in and also participate. You can lie or we can cut the answer if it's bad. But are the engineers coming to these sessions? Like you send invites, but are people coming? They are. They are. Really? And I'd okay. love to talk about that. Yes. I think one of the great things about Etsy is every piece of the organization is really thinking about the, the customer. So when it comes to engineers, you know, and maybe functions the organization that you don't normally think of participating in research, we have repeatedly engineers um, absolutely coming in, participating, sometimes directly participating, asking questions, sometimes listening in, uh, sometimes we have note takers. And we think that is, let's say I don't speak for Etsy, but I am going to say that that is something that is we hold very high at Etsy um, to make sure that you know everybody can sort of hear that direct voice of the customer. And I think that is something that funnels through when they go ahead and develop and things like that. Well, I will say nobody can see your reaction when I ask that, but the enthusiasm and passion, I don't have like a lie detector, but I will tell you at least you pass the eye test. And I, I ask it skeptically because, you know, engineers, they want to they code and things like that. And it's really easy to put them in that box. But I think it's fantastic if you build that culture to bring that everybody needs to be to be centered on it. Reflecting on my own time, you know, as a designer, I think part of me felt, I almost felt like that was like my domain understanding the research, translating it and designing. And as I reflect back, there was almost something like mysterious about what I did. And I think part of that was maybe my making sure I felt valuable. What you're describing it, I'm like, oh gosh, could I have done that when I was starting out? Like really open it? Because it's almost like, hey, you can come in and hear the same things. Like that would like, that would hurt my ego as a designer. Like, no, I'm going to figure out all this stuff and just like deliver these designs and you're just going to like build them because you think I'm brilliant, but you're like pulling back the curtain and inviting them in. So maybe it's just a problem with me, but I'm just curious. You, you, did you ever struggle with that? Like bringing other people outside the domain whose maybe expertise isn't user research or, or user centered design, or was it easy to just invite people in and, and it made your conversations easier from that point forward? I think, Many designers, you know, struggle with that. And that's something that I struggled with earlier in my career. Something that really switched for me was really at Salesforce. When I was working with engineers at Salesforce, you know, some of the problems that we were solving were so, so complicated that me as a designer, I even felt like I was not as qualified. Some of the problems that we were solving were, were actually more developer things. Like if you're designing a development interface, then actually, you know, I'm not the most qualified at designing it. So it really made me understand the value of sort of like bringing in others into the conversation and other than myself and other than like, you know, our little core group of product at Etsy, I would say that's doubled down on even more. We have like a, a very, you know, strong culture of, we talk about it as discovery. So whenever we sort of start a project or, you know, usually this happens, you know, maybe towards the beginning of a, of a, of a year, we actually bring in everybody into the conversation to really, really actually hone in and really figure out exactly what we're going to work on. So a lot of times we'll have presentations from 
maybe someone on the, the, the analytics side, you know, kind of understanding the data coming back from our customers, presentations from product managers to kind of understand what's what we're doing on the strategy side. And then everybody's sort of like participating and trying to sort of like wrap our brains around any particular problem. And it definitely extends to pretty much everybody in the organization. I didn't mean to seem skeptical that you did it. It's my own problem. But you're right. I also worked in products where it's like, you can't even like some of them are just like business logic. You can look at it as a designer like this seems overly complicated and you redesign something and you talk to engineering like, well, that's because it integrates with 17 other things that you don't see that you need to understand. It's like, ah, man, it's just like maybe I just talk to you next time before I have an idea. But that, that sounds great. Like you've got it. Seems like you have a lot of different things that you do at Etsy that helps break that down. When you see your role as a designer at Etsy, not just in the general sphere of being a designer, as you might explain to your to your friends and family, but inside of Etsy with this team approach, what is your role? How do you see what's the value that you bring ultimately to that to that team role on the on the seller side? As a as a designer, as I progress in my career, I think I ask that question more and more every day, to be real honest. And not in like a, you know, what am I doing? Because my calendar is very filled and I'm doing a lot of things. But, you know, it, it seemed a lot more clear cut when I was sort of on a team doing the designs and, and passing along the designs and sort of what have you. But as I sort of progressed in my career and thinking about Etsy, I think we as designers, we are really the nexus of a lot of those other functions because we have that power of sort of turning a lot of those things or a lot of those problems into something that is able to be understood, oftentimes visual, but also not always visual. And I think that me constantly going in between these different functions and trying to understand everyone's perspective, whether it's putting it into a framework or putting it into a visual, putting it into something that can sort of be codified and understood by multiple parties, I think that is really the job of a designer. We are back with the one and only Mike Hardy from Etsy to help us recap some of these Etsy episodes. In the first episode, we heard from Heather Campbell, who's a product manager on the buyer side of Etsy. So if you want to go buy something on Etsy, that's the person that's sort of overseeing the connecting that experience. Now we're going to switch over to the other side because we, we, we kicked this off saying what's interesting. I wouldn't say unique. Uh, there are other marketplaces, but I think Etsy is very different. I want to call it unusual, by the way, Mike, because like that's like the right word to use. And I'm trying to bring that in vogue because everybody overuses unique. Like it can't be unique. There's other mark, but like every time I say unusual, I don't know, you tell me, does like unusual have a negative connotation to you? I, I don't think unusual has a negative connotation. If you've been keeping your eyes on the interwebs, everyone's talking about Chugi nowadays. You know, like you just Whoa, wait, wait, what I am not on the interwebs. <laughs> what 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 did not you just say? Yeah, Chugi or Lechug. I, I think I've pronounced that the correct way. So, you know, things that millennials happen to love that Gen Z might think is a little dated or out of the mainstream. I think that like Etsy is that and like so much more. Unusual definitely fits. You just have a variety of different things for a variety of different interests. Um, and it's equally as diverse when you get on the seller side of the house. People are making some really cool stuff that's out there. So, yeah, unusual is not bad. Okay, cool. So Etsy is unusual in that way. And I think the creativity that you all, I think, foster is fantastic. And so on the one side, we've already covered with Heather is on the buyer side who are sort of like, you don't know what they want to go find out. And sometimes they don't always know. 
Now we're going to talk to, or now we're going to talk about uh, Nick Volpe, who kind of covered what it's like designing for the for the seller side. And the first thing that that, that I think is important to note here is is how you design for the customer's customer. So tell me what that means to you, and sort of you know you know help us you know translate what, what Nick said to other people building product when you talk about the customer's customer. A lot of things that you'll hear are a lot of things that Nick really described. I was talking about making tools that help a seller efficiently run their business to where they can be in the experience, in the product, do it as they need to do, list their items, sell them, promote them, place them, and then get back to the thing that they really care about doing, which is making really unique handmade goods or selling their vintage items or just expressing yourself creatively for sale on Etsy. So. When Nick talks about design for a customer's customer, we're just an intermediary. We facilitate that relationship that that seller has with the buyer, and we're making the tools that helps the seller earn a living and then also help us earn a living as well. So that's what I understood from Nick's uh, design for the customer's customer. We're thinking about both the seller and the buyer together and figuring out what's the right thing to prioritize and really give value to both of them. It feels like there's almost like this invisible balance that exists on a marketplace. Like you could... I don't know. Let me play this out. Like you could lean too hard on the supporting sellers and it becomes a bad experience for the buyer because the tools, the things you do to help someone make money might be counter to, to, to what a buyer wants. Or you could swing too hard on the buyer side and support things that are just too discovery oriented. And then you're probably realizing that, oh shoot, some of those changes we made have caused our sellers to make less money. So how do you sort of on the design team balance that almost like invisible, I guess, seesaw? We heard in the first episode with Heather talking about the role of experimentation. Nick talks quite a bit about experimentation as well to make sure that we're not creating those like moments of calamity to where something is made for a seller that really gets in the way of what a buyer is trying to achieve and then also vice versa. So the way that we really do that from design is really working very closely with our other design partners. So folks from product marketing, folks from UX writing, folks who are coming from the marketing sides of the house, and then definitely research. I think what's interesting about the research team is that they are their own independent unit. They do both market analysis and understanding the trends that are going on in the world, and they also help us do product research as well. So the way we really stay balanced is by leveraging those partners asking them really sharp and smart questions, taking in those insights, and really making sure that we're bringing them to the table anytime we get ready to make a change in the product or even do something new. Yeah, that reminds me when he was talking about those learning labs that you all had, which I assume was you know, pre-COVID where you brought sellers into the office. I, I love that concept. Yeah, they still happen. The learning labs still happen. They're just now virtual where we're still bringing those, uh, those sellers and we even bring in buyers too. Something that I've seen lately is that we'll find one-off sellers who just have a really compelling story to see what their take is on something that we happen to be working on or to just hear something that we haven't before. So those learning labs definitely still occur. Um, I think Nick does a really good job of kind of unpacking what those learning labs do for us. And I think he'll also speak to our kind of sharing that knowledge out to other teams here at Etsy. Thinking back to Nick's interview from the design perspective, you and I are both designers, so you'll know sort of where I come from with this. In design in general, there's almost this understating that you have to embrace the unknowable. Like you just don't get it. Like science is kind of this thing where you run experiments to figure out the cause of something or to isolate things. And eventually you run enough experience to figure out the answer. But it's interesting as I think about when you're talking about experimentation at Etsy and I hear you talk about design that 
I haven't heard you or anybody in the interview say we're doing experiments to figure out the answer. It almost feels like you're doing experiments because there's no like one unknowable thing or like you may run experiments for a couple of weeks and think, okay, I think I have a good idea. You go do that. It works for a week. And then I don't know, something massive happens, like masks become popular because there's a pandemic and it throws it off. So I don't know what the question is other than just like throwing that out there that this experimentation almost seems like you all embrace that there's no full way to get to a right answer. Would you agree? Does that make any sense? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think Nick speaks to this quite a bit about just like the level of autonomy that he does have as a designer. He does talk a little bit about his experience on working on our seller app or something that we call sell on Etsy and how we took a different take on what that app needed to be. Which features do we have that aren't in the web that we want to include inside uh, that mobile application? That's a newish space. We do have information. We do have data on that. We know reasonably what sellers are looking for but we haven't quite done it like this. So I think it's accurate to say that there's no one best answer that we can know through experimentation, but we know that we can know something more than what we do at that particular moment. So that's why we test. That's why we get to that rigor. That's why we're, uh, that's why we experiment in order to make sure that we are making quality product for people who happen to be using them, but it's not to get a perfect uh, degree of truth out of it. Not at all. So one last follow-up question on that. How do you know as a designer that you've designed something well? Like if you experiment and you almost don't know if it's going to work and I designed something, how do you have any confidence that you're doing well as a designer when there's that much change and uncertainty? I think Etsy product and also product design does follow like a lot of the best practices that you'll see at any product company. Yes, we do have OKRs. Yes, we know that those O's kind of more or less stay the same. But those KRs can shift and change. So we are applying a lot of the agile approaches that you'll commonly see, um, the test and learn approach, uh, the fail fast approach. If we, we really try to push a lot of those like key results uh, to the limit and say, hey, what breaks it? If it does break it, is there a different goal that we actually need to go towards? What's the right hypothesis that we need to get to? How can we know and how can we use what we've already failed on to really inform what our next best step is? So I think you know. You go to enough revs, you talk to enough people, you run enough of those experiments to give yourself some confidence, and then you take it out the rest of the way. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. So recap, so far we talked to Heather Campbell, PM on the buyer side. We've now talked to Nick Volpe, designer on the seller side. I'm going to just say that. Yeah. So next episode, we're going to be talking to the head of product design to sort of just wrap all this stuff together. I'm Megan. And I'm Christian. And this is better product. product. (laughs) Perfect. Nailed it.